when I was a psych tech in Washington, D.C. in the mid 80s, I saw de-escalation on the unit, saw our nurses day to day help our patients who couldn't control themselves, who were potentially risky, who were dangerous. The very first restraint that I was part of, having received zero training at all, uh, essentially included the directive, um, Scott, your job is don't let this person leave the room because we will be trying to give her a shot. And so essentially the nursing staff had to chase this woman down within a room to give her a shot. And my job was to not let her leave. And like you, I've watched de-escalation as a concept in our society. And, you know, it's probably fair to say within the last 10 years, it's really gotten a lot of attention in the law enforcement arena. And so from my beginnings with de-escalation in the 80s, in the nursing side, um, and then later in residential uh, care in the 90s, I worked um, in a children's residential facility or agency, I should say. And then through the societal changes, really what we've seen is de-escalation. And in fact, the literature reflects this, comes from nursing and comes from law enforcement. So as we talk, that is the context in terms of how we can see what works. But really a lot of what we see is what works is with our own eyes. And whether you're working with a client population that's more likely to require de-escalation, let's say FSP or something like that, or whether you're working with clients who rarely but sometimes may escalate, hopefully you've had the opportunity to watch colleagues. In fact, uh, I was lucky <laughs> that in uh, children's residential where I worked, I, I saw one person who I thought was just the best I've ever seen at de-escalation. And I eventually asked him, is it okay if I watch you uh, when a client is fully escalated and you come on the scene, is it okay if I just kind of park myself 10, 15 yards away and watch what you do? Luck luckily, he said, yeah, that'd be fine. Um, and I encourage you to think about what have you seen that's been effective? I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, some of what he had was magic. I'm not going to say that I, you know, therefore I picked that part up. But what I really noticed was this balance that he had of being in control of a situation and not being controlling. Being supportive, but not being taken for a ride by the client. He never fell for anything, but he was never dismissive. That was balance he was able to settle a situation that other people would sometimes move to kind of co-escalating with the client. And sometimes that was under the guise of control uh, and accountability. 
So by that same token, when we look at greatest misses, I also encourage you to take a look at what doesn't work. What have you seen others do that's been ineffective? And I don't mean in a judgmental sense to say, you know, this person is dispositionally, you know, fascist and it shows up in their de-escalation failures. I'm not asking for that. I'm asking for, given what is happening in an escalation, in what way does an action lead that escalation to settle down or to get worse? See what backfires. By and large, people who work in our field uh, are here because we're trying to be as helpful as possible. And so the motive is almost never the problem. Good intentioned interventions backfire sometimes. And, and I encourage you to kind of take a look and, and sort of think why. By the way, for ourselves as well. When I say take a look, I also mean in the mirror. Uh, it's a, that's sometimes a tougher view, but it's a necessary one. What have I seen other people do that I vowed will never be part of my de-escalation repertoire? I think ultimatums and um, coercion. I vowed to never make that part of my de-escalation repertoire because I saw it continually not work. I mean, not only did, did I feel that it was not nice, but I didn't see it work. And then, so now I want to maybe broaden our sense of when we you know, saw that it worked or not. Sometimes you say like, if the person calmed down, right? Someone was about to hit someone else and then they didn't hit them. Would we say it worked? And that's, I think, a reasonable way to consider it. But also, you know, next week, if there's a frustrating situation, did the person not make a threat, but did they instead move toward using some of the skills that help them to not get to that point? It's another way to consider whether it works, right? And so when we're looking at how can we tell if something works, it's in the moment and it has a pattern. De-escalation. In order to understand that, I think we have to maybe even understand what escalation is. So let's define it. Escalation is an intense, impulsive, disorganized overreaction. I might even add it's emotion-driven, an intense, impulsive, disorganized, emotion-driven overreaction. But it's not just a moment in time. It's a series of moments that get worse. So escalation is moving. Escalation becomes more intensely negative and risky through a vicious cycle. So with escalation, part of what's difficult about it is what's happening right now. But a lot of what's difficult about it is the sense that if this continues and everyone who's involved in that escalation kind of has it going in their head, at this rate, we are doomed. We are headed toward this is about to crash into the rocks. And there, once I introduced that sense of everyone else there, it really removed it from the sense of an individual escalating in and of themselves on their own. Very typically, escalation is an interpersonal phenomenon. People escalate around authority figures. People escalate around frustration related to someone else 
being perceived as in the way of what they want. People escalate with their family members. People escalate with us. People escalate in lines on the bus. People escalate on Zoom. Uh, it can become contagious. So in our uh, era over the last few years, we've become, I think, more heightened to this notion of what do we mean contagious anyways, right? Uh, how, can, how can someone catch escalation from someone else? Well, let's think of it this way. If someone around you is shouting and threatening at you and moving towards you and posturing in a way that indicates they may just physically try to harm you, your heart rate's going to go up. Your breathing is going to change. Your thoughts are going to be impacted. So this notion that someone else could impact your internal organings and their functioning, let's call that contagion. <clears throat> And so wouldn't it be great if, by the way, see how I did that? I started with talking about the 80s when I worked at a hospital and now I'm, I'm quoting a Dire Straits song kind of uh, from the 80s. It's, it's throwback Tuesday, people. So wouldn't it be great if we could turn to an evidence-based practice of de-escalation? We're not there yet. Um, we have no definitive guidance on best practices to de-escalate aggressive behaviors. And you can see even by the spelling of the second quote that looking at journals, English language journals, uh, American and British English, um, we don't have it yet. We may get to it. It's, it's tough though, when you think about this notion of randomized control trials, that's a, a tough series of, um, you know, experiments to set up, but we have some sense of what works. We have a number of models that have been tried uh, and implemented. And so we do have something to go on. We're not completely off on our own. There are any number of them to use. Um, here's one that I came across recently that I liked a lot. And so we'll kind of use this as an organizing principle today for ourselves, um, but it doesn't mean it's the only one. I'll kind of give you a sense of, of how this will guide our talk. Because sometimes when we say de-escalation, there's a temptation to say like, man, just show me what to do, <laughs> right? Uh, show me what to do and then I'll put it into action. But even before we get to what to do, and that's kind of represented by the red rectangles, there have to be pieces in place here we see self-control and respect and empathy. There have to be pieces in place that make it work. Soil has to be fertile for the seed to grow. And this is one of those areas where for us working with clients, um, a lot of our work on de-escalation honestly begins well before the escalation. We'll get to that as we move forward. Um, I've already said there aren't EBPs for us to go to, so let's do another kind of spoiler alert. 
um, you can't de-escalate somebody. So I'm willing to suspect that by devoting two hours of your Tuesday morning to a de-escalation training, it's a reasonable assumption that you would expect we would learn how to de-escalate someone. And we will learn um, how to help someone de-escalate themselves. That's all we can do. We can learn how to coach, how to facilitate, how to help. We can learn how to make it so that someone is more likely to calm down in the moment and also more likely to be able to keep their cool moving forward. That's partly why we have this titled de-escalation prevention intervention and afterwards. We're taking it away from this idea of de-escalation as a moment and looking at it as de-escalation as a pattern. In fact, as long as we're on the spoiler alerts topic, I'll give you another one. Um, for the clients with whom you work, if you experience them escalating, it is probably not the first time they have escalated. And it is in all likelihood, not the last time they will escalate. If you de-escalate, that doesn't mean you will no longer escalate. It's a pattern. Now, there's good and bad news in a pattern, right? The bad news about a pattern means it can really have an impact on people's lives. The good news about a pattern, though, is once it's a pattern, we can predict it. And once we can predict it, we can prevent it. Well, here I am, I'm talking about a lot of, you know, intellectualization of a de-escalation. And I'm sure a number of you have been in de-escalation de situations where you know what, this is an emergency. This is heavy. This is risky. This is loud. This is bad. And so foundational piece number one, or maybe keeping with that metaphor earlier of if the soil isn't fertile, the seed won't grow. Step one about the fertile soil for us is that our own self-control remains intact. And even with that, I want to kind of go back to the person that I would watch when I first started in the field. And he was able to balance support and control of a situation because his self-control never left. Focusing on ourselves allows us to control ourselves in the moment. We don't focus on ourselves in the moment. We focus on ourselves and the self-control required as a prevention piece. This is something that's ongoing for us. This is in fact, back to this idea of, um, you know, we are able to implement a set of interventions, but we are in large part also the intervention itself. Someone interacting with us, it, <laughs> I, I hope this isn't too much of a tangent, but in mental health, 
we really do have the assumption, I believe it's true, that if someone is just around us enough, they're likely to improve. There's something about you that if a client is around you, they're likely to improve. Now, you can't just sit there and do nothing. You have to be doing the right interventions, but the right interventions done the right way by the right person works. And in that regard, we've got to keep ourselves as sharp as any of our interventions. So what does this mean? Control ourselves. I won't go over this full list, but you know, when we're talking about, you know, here's what you should do. Relax your face. Don't frown. <laughs> that's, that's, that's really hard to do. In fact, you know, in looking at the literature, which I mentioned comes by and large from law enforcement and nursing, I'll give you um, a little piece from some of the, the law enforcement literature on this, the Memphis model. And, you know, they had said when, when you're speaking with someone who has escalated, it may feel comfortable to you to rest with your hand, you know, on your side firearm while you're talking to someone that may just be a physically comfortable posture. And in, in the manual, it said, but don't do that. Because what the person is seeing is your hand on your weapon. And that is a communication. So don't put your hand on your weapon, right? Even if you're doing that, you know, for comfort's sake, even if you would stand that way while you were in line um, at a restaurant. Then what they said was regarding facial expression, they said, we have no guidance regarding facial expression. In fact, we defer to the hiring managers to hire people whose intention is to help serve the community as opposed to nail the bad guys. If you are hiring people whose purpose is to serve the community, then their facial expression will take care of itself. But we are not going to describe the muscles that should tighten or loosen in order to make a smile. Raise eyebrows, raise sides of lips in the shape of, a, no, forget it, right? The idea is um, work to like the people work to support the people, work to serve the people that you're intending to. So the self-control really then becomes kind of an internal thing in part guided by attitude, but also, you know, when we're talking about a relaxed body, slow and gentle movements, um, not falling into arguing, that kind of thing, there's a relaxation aspect to that. There's a part of that that is about deep breathing, visualization. There's a part of that that is, you know, even as I'm describing it, you're starting to recognize, right? Any training that you're in when they say, you know, put both feet on the ground, feel the way that you connect to the floor. All of a sudden you're like, wait, is this a self-care <laughs> self training? Uh, and the answer is, heck yeah, it is. 
because that's part of the context that allows us to control ourselves. And even when we look at this last one, um, help the person to be able to save face. If they have the last word and they're complying, let them have it. It's only a power struggle if we are pulling on the other end of that rope. And if we're pulling on the other end of a rope, creating a tug of war, we're not controlling ourselves. It's that balance between support and control. So let's ask, you know, self-control is sometimes an internal phenomenon, legitimately. But how could a client tell? Um, what does our composure look like? Posture, position, movement, hands. You know, when we get escalated, believe it or not, our hands can ball up into the shape of a fist with no intention to slug somebody. But how do we look when we're composed? When do we choose to take a seat? Do we take a seat next to someone on a curbside? Uh, do we stand over someone? People can perceive us as intimidating. And especially if a client has a trauma history, when escalation is happening with someone, their kind of brain activity is such that the emotional areas are much more activated than the parts that handle reason, logic, and language. And so we could very easily trigger something by accident. What do we sound like when we're composed? How would a client be able to tell that we're composed? And, you know, escalate, I don't need to tell you, escalations can be loud. And so how can we be loud enough to be heard? Yet, working to bring the overall volume of the interaction down to a reasonable level. And what's the context? How can a client tell if we're composed if we are driving them to their home or to an appointment? Right? You, you, you tried de-escalating through a rearview mirror. Some of you may have. I have. It's hard. We may be in someone's apartment. We may be in an alley by a tent. We may be in the clinic. We may be working with our client and a stranger uh, in the community. How can a client tell if we're composed in the moment? And with that, we've got to know our own tendencies. Part of this idea of, you know, watching people who do it really well or watching people who maybe have their interventions backfire also involves being able to kind of look in that metaphorical 
mirror and know our tendencies. I'll share a, a brief one of myself. Um, when I am thinking, there's a risk that I look angry. If, if I'm trying to solve a difficult moment, something about my face, whether it's the eyebrows or the mouth, I'm not exactly sure, but I've had enough clients ask me, are you mad right now? That I know something, something, and you know, I've had to say, no, I'm just thinking, but thanks for asking because uh, I'd hate you to think I'm mad. And so now I kind of know proactively if I am thinking to say, you know, PS, this is just how my face looks when I'm thinking, just in case it's giving you something else. Because this is all about interpretation. The way that we can tell if a client is escalated, the way that a client can tell if we are composed, all of that comes in through someone else's sensory setup. So while we are assessing the client in these moments, they're assessing us too. Comes through a lens. And our jobs are no joke. I don't need to tell you that. Um, our jobs were hard uh, in the era that led up to the year 2020. Our jobs got hard in a different way since. And that's because there's a complexity now for our own world, you know, within and without of the job itself and for the clients with whom we work. And so I, I want to take a moment to define and, and point out certain aspects of burnout and compassion fatigue. You likely already know these things, so I won't kind of belabor it by spending too long on it. Um, and if there are, you know, comments or questions uh, after I kind of describe these two parts, I would, I would love to be able to, to address it and be helpful. Burnout in its classical definition, and this is from uh, Maslach, has three parts, emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, and it's probably fair to, to consider that cynicism, emotional exhaustion, cynicism, and a decreased sense of personal accomplishment. I'm wrung out. These clients aren't going to get better anyways. And I don't even think my interventions are landing these days. That's the type of talk that's indicative of burnout in all three areas. And emotional exhaustion is beyond the typical tiredness that any of us would have. And some days are long, man. <laughs> some weeks include long day after long day. And by long, I don't necessarily just mean the hours. I mean, certain days take something out of you. And the empathy that we bring to our job 
takes a piece of your heart sometimes. So it's really about that, that third one there for emotional exhaustion, feeling overextended and exhausted. And then this, this feeling like if I, was, if I was really on top of my game, this wouldn't be taking me so long. I'm having to put my, my notes, right? Writing a progress note should take me about 10 to 15 minutes, but all of a sudden it's taking me 25 to 30 now because I'm, I'm just so wasted, I can't focus my mind. That's, that's the talk of emotional exhaustion. Depersonalization or cynicism is, you know, decreased empathy. With interpersonal relationships, the idea is kind of losing track of the fact that that's another person with their own struggles and challenges and just experiencing them as uh, a barrier. Um, cynicism toward the people you work with, loss of sensitivity to their problems. You know, working with clients, and in fact, I'll bring in one of the areas where this tends to show up maybe even more is that co-occurrence of mental health issues and substance use and a loss of sensitivity to the problems leads to a view of that substance abuse that it kind of is revealing a moral failure when in fact, that's not what substance abuse is like at all. And really the field hasn't thought that for the last 50 or 60 years. But in a context of depersonalization and cynicism, people tend to kind of gravitate back conceptually regarding substance abuse. They kind of change their theory. Um, and it feels like, you know, you're trying your hardest with the client and it's almost feels like their difficulties are an indictment of you. The third aspect of burnout is feeling like you don't ha have it like you used to have it. Um, you're not making a difference. You're not jazzed about getting to it and helping people. That's burnout. And burnout has a cousin. And, and that cousin is compassion fatigue. And I say cousin because they tend to go together. They're a little bit different, but they tend to go together. Secondary traumatic stress is part of compassion fatigue. What that means is you didn't live your client's trauma but because you have empathy, when you hear about your client's trauma, you feel a little bit of it. I mean, that's the definition of empathy, right? To be able to feel a little bit of what someone else feels. You can't live it, but you share that feeling of what they went through. That's what I meant before when I said you give a piece of your heart. In repeated exposure, the stories about trauma can start to lead our own bodies to, in that now sort of quote, uh, a famous book on trauma, leading our own bodies to kind of keep the score. So we might find ourselves having trouble sleeping because we are thinking about what our client went through. And, and get this one, right? This, this, 
puzzled me until I found myself experiencing it. You know how one of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder is um, re-experiencing, you know, what we would call like flashbacks, seeing the, the trauma in, in your head, even though it's no longer occurring. Well, I've experienced times, and, and you may have to, where you're seeing something in your head that's been described to you, but you never actually saw it in the first place. So you are having flashbacks to something you never saw in the first place. Filling in all kind of blanks in ways that, you know, maybe do, maybe don't match what actually happened in the world. But re-experiencing is a symptom of PTSD and we can have it even if we never saw the actual event. Secondary traumatic stress. The other part of compassion fatigue is um, starting to have this negative overall feeling. Um, you know, we, we aren't here to get rich. All right, otherwise we'd have picked a different major or uh, you've got friends who didn't go through college and pick majors who are making more money in, in, a, in a trade or a business. We didn't come here for that. We came here because we're kind of do-gooders. The idea is I want to help my community, help the community, help people who are less fortunate, help people who, especially since we're working with people who by and large are uh, economically disadvantaged, as well as dealing with mental health issues and in all likelihood, physical health, housing, medical, uh, substance use on and on, right? Trying to help. And when we start losing pleasure from doing that work, that's a, a drop in compassion satisfaction. It's part of compassion fatigue. Uh, that's not your signal that, you know, you're cooked, therefore you gotta go find something else to do. Um, as it's coming, it's the signal for us to take action to keep ourselves okay. In a practical sense, that's about the self-control required in order for any of what we're gonna talk about the rest of this morning regarding de-escalation. It's what allows our interventions to work. I'll assign you some, <laughs> I'll assign you some homework, sorry, sorry. Here you thought I would teach you how to de-escalate someone else. And I told you, you can't actually de-escalate someone else. You have to help them de-escalate themselves. And now I'm gonna give you homework, man. So here's your, your homework. Uh, this is free, the professional quality of life scale. This has uh, the ability for you to kind of fill out, I forget how many questions, 15 to 20 questions, and then to score it on a few different domains. Burnout is included there, as is um, compassion fatigue and secondary traumatic stress. This self-assessment allows you to get a look at burnout before it comes barging through your front door. I'd hate for you to experience burnout and compassion fatigue because you were the last to notice. And sometimes that's how it happens. It's a little sneaky and insidious like that. Well, your other homework. Um, 
is that sometimes there's a risk of throwing ourselves so wholeheartedly into our jobs that it's all we do. Um, and we can lose this sense of balance in our own lives as we're working to help the community, working with people who are homeless, trying to control the difficulties involved with substance use, dealing with clients who sometimes are at risk enough to need to be hospitalized. Some of you may have worked with clients who have uh, suffered a much worse fate than that. And, you know, there's, there's a longer list than yoga, chocolate, and sleep. Those are just kind of the pictures I, uh, I pulled up. But the idea here is uh, scheduling healthy, fun things in your life is actually part of your job. I would go as far as to say, I believe professionalism is better defined by the way that you take care of yourself. Certainly more importantly than are you wearing jeans, yes or no, for heaven's sake, who cares? But can you get yourself seven hours of sleep? And by the way, seven hours is pretty much that, that number. If you can get there, uh, you're less likely to get sick and you're more likely to be able to stay composed under some of the incredibly stressful times that we're helping with de-escalation. All right, so let's do it. We've kind of defined escalation. We've looked at a model for de-escalation and we've thought about this practical application of self-care being that first contextual element necessary for any of this to work for any of the interventions to actually work, the soil's gotta be fertile. And for us, that is self-control, which happens through self-care. Another part of that though, is being able to self-assess, to know ourselves well enough. And, you know, in the old days, man, I'm having kind of a reminiscent day. I started with the eighties and now I'm talking about in the old days. Uh, therapy was required in graduate school. You know, you get admitted to school and the, uh, for me, a, a PhD program in psychology, it at my program, it wasn't mandated, but in a lot of other ones, it was. It was kind of phasing out as I was, you know, kind of entering the field. In some other programs, I think it still does exist that way. Well, why? Part of the reason is to know ourselves well enough to know our tendencies. What might happen if we are pushed a little bit beyond our limit. Let's say our self-control teeters and tilts toward trouble. What might it look like for us? And in those kind of moments, we have to be aware of how does anger show up for us? What are the signals that we are angry? What are the signals that we are becoming angry, anxious? Or carrying this notion of justice that can really kind of overlap with mental health and treatment. If someone has done something wrong, this question of what should then happen as a response in order to, and it's, it's always about the 
the functional aspect in order to make that bad thing less likely to happen next time. Is that about justice, punishment, or is that about teaching um, and treatment? And we have to know where we stand on that. We have to talk about it. We have to have conversations. These are tough. Um, you know, I've had them before with treatment teams. And you find there's a lot of difference on treatment teams. Treatment teams can argue a lot about what should happen toward a client if they have destroyed property, assaulted someone, if they have threatened. Then the question is, what's the next best step, series of steps for the team to take? And when team members are really far apart on this, then we've got trouble. And so now you've also noticed that I've kind of pluralized the word our. Instead of just talking about us as a set of individuals, now talking about us as treatment teams, we have emotional reactions to a client. There may be different members of a team who have different reactions. And certainly a client may bring a different way of acting toward any of us based on what we may remind them of or how we may fit into their schemas. There may be issues of diversity related to the way that a client perceives any of us and then acts toward any of us so that someone who is a different gender may in some ways be interacting with a different version of the client. Someone who's a different ethnicity may be reacting with a different version of the client or someone who appears um, in any number of ways. We may have assumptions about the client. Those are kind of cognitive errors based on, you know, kind of I've known clients like this, therefore I know this client. And, you know, let's also um, include this notion that, you know, sometimes we're our best selves and sometimes we're not. And our own lives have ups and downs. Our own lives have bad years. Certainly in the way that you've heard me describe the course, um, you know, some decades are better than others. Because as we're beginning to work with a client, we get to meet them. And very typically, we hear about a client through their history. You know, if that's an, uh, an FSP referral, we kind of look at it through the SRTS um, description. And what we are seeing in that is justification for a higher level of care. Typically with that, we don't get a lot of context about client strengths. We get difficulties. We might learn about a client in court. We might meet them at an inpatient unit or while they're incarcerated. Uh, they are in all likelihood at that moment at their worst. And even as we're meeting clients, let's say at a board and care or in a residential, and we're asking, how are you getting along with people? What's going on? As someone may start to talk about areas of conflict, even in talking about those, they're not escalating, but they're talking about a time that they've had an argument. Their own emotions may start to get more and more intense. Those are kind of mini versions of an escalation just in the telling of the story. There's not an argument going on right then, but telling about the argument, and we've all been there, right? So we can recognize that. 
So the second part of having that fertile soil in order for our interventions to work is being able to listen, connect, support. In some ways, um, what, what I got in, in speaking to that one person who I really admired so much in terms of the way he would de-escalate, he would say, you have to listen to what the person is trying to say, but they don't know how to say it. So all that's coming out is their crisis. Their crisis is their communication. Because in this moment, they don't have the skill set to do it another way. He says, you got to be able to listen to the crisis. Well, for us, that means support understanding their interest, really behind every um, kind of exaggerated, emotion-driven, impulsive upset, somewhere in there is probably a real legitimate point. It's up to us to try to find that legitimate point, to seek it out. Our priority in a de-escalation is to help the situation stay safe, help the situation settle down, help the person be less likely to escalate less time, next time. And in a lot of ways, that's about helping the person to communicate properly so that everyone can know their need without having to protect themselves from what might happen as this is getting worse and worse. Looking down to that bottom point, empathizing with the feelings, but not with the aggressive behavior. And, you know, even if someone is asking us a question while they're insulting us with cuss words, we can answer the question. Yes, we want to hold people accountable, but let me even talk about kind of accountability and behavioral interventions and stuff like that. Though that comes from learning theory, for heaven's sake. Nobody learns when they're freaking out. People learn when they're calm, right? And so really any of that accountability is only ever going to work after the person has settled down. Respect and empathy. The one more piece of that is to consider the, the role of patience here. Uh, it can feel like it's taking forever to help a person settle down. Getting back to, you know, I, I think one of our own triggers in all likelihood, and we don't have enough time to, uh, to spend on this, but I do want to mention it so that we all know that's what we think. Law enforcement situations gone wrong is a big part of our own reaction to De-escalation, right? If only de-escalation had been put in place is kind of how we get there when we've seen the videos that we've seen again and again and again, relentlessly. We've seen enough tragic situations. Um, and let's not pretend we've seen enough tragic situations that tend to land disproportionately on young adults black males. So what, is, what does that mean? Why would I add that part here? Well, part of what that means with respect and empathy is that as we're listening to a crisis, we're listening to a person. 
And in order for us to demonstrate the respect and empathy, it has to exist within us. So how can we tell if someone else is angry? I'll tell you about this fascinating study at um, UCLA, maybe 2014, something like that. And then I'll connect it back to where we were just talking. So subjects were shown, right? They took a, a group of, of subjects, divided them into, and then randomly either showed them the first two pictures, the, the two up on the top, the guy standing there and then with the knife beside him, or they showed them the picture on the bottom. And they said, you know, to what degree is this person feeling um, anger or uh, disgust or surprise? You know, scale of one to whatever. To what degree is this person feeling this emotion or that emotion? And what they found was, and, and you can tell now because you're seeing both pictures at the same time, it's the same picture. It's just digitally altered in this second one so that the hand is pointing outward. Same expression, same posture. Everything is the same. They can see a person and a knife. Oh, I should also add, they were told, here's a picture of someone who likes to cook. So it's, it's kind of a kitchen knife. Here's a picture of a person who likes to cook. To what degree is this person experiencing disgust, surprise, anger? There was no difference between the group of people who saw this first pair of pictures and this second picture. There was no difference between groups in terms of the way it said, you know, the degree to which this person feels surprised. There was no difference in terms of the way this person felt disgust. There was a difference in terms of the degree to which people perceived this person as feeling angry. People tended to perceive the person on the bottom as angrier than the person on the top. Okay. Because it's UCLA and good science says replicate, they did. More subjects, more pictures. Sometimes I said, here's a picture of a person who likes to garden. Sometimes I said, here's a picture of a person who likes to cook in order to control for the fact that back here we had uh, you know, the presence of an implement in their hand or the absence. Uh, in this case, there was always something in the hand, but what was in the hand would be more likely to be perceived as a weapon, right? A kitchen knife could be uh, more likely used as a weapon than a spatula. Um, garden shears might be more likely to be used as a weapon than a watering can. Same result. People perceived the person holding the weapon as angrier than the person holding the other implement. No difference on surprise or disgust. Well, what is that? What the researchers concluded was that the way that we attribute anger to someone else is based on our sense, not of what is happening, but what might happen. Anger, maybe differently than other emotions, is seen as a prediction. The more angry someone is, the more likely they are to be aggressive. 
The more angry someone is, the more likely they are to hurt me. And someone holding a weapon is more likely to hurt me. Therefore, and this is kind of the, the description that the researchers gave, this perception that we have becomes more sensitive when we see someone as potentially dangerous to us. So that if you perceive someone as potentially more dangerous, then you are more likely to put anger as their emotion, even if they aren't feeling that. Well, damn. The paper didn't go there, but I certainly did. And I don't know if you did as well. I thought, I wonder if, I wonder the degree to which. Some of what we've seen in these tragic absences of respectful engagement and de-escalation, some of the videos that we've seen that have haunted us, might be about someone perceiving an angry black man where the person isn't that at all, or isn't that any more than anyone else. I don't know, by the way, I haven't done any specific research on this. My head just went there. Yours may have too. The degree to which we perceive someone as potentially dangerous changes the way that we assess their emotion. Well, then what this means for us is we've got to gain insight into our own biases. Back to what used to exist in graduate school, this idea that, you know, you've got to get your own therapy in order to be effective in this profession. Part of that was to get to know yourself so you can see what buttons there are. And part of that was to really understand your own biases. So I've already given you one homework assignment, which was to go to that website for the professional quality of life scale, the ProQual. I won't give you this as a homework. I will try to just tempt you to go to this website, implicit.harvard.edu. This gives you a, uh, this gives you a way to assess yourself regarding potential biases you may have. And they do it in the most clever way. They do it in a way where they show you pictures and maybe it's, you, you can choose different aspects, right? So it might be race, it might be skin tone, it might be weight or disability. And then it pairs it with positive or negative images or positive or negative words. Harmful or harmless objects, black or white faces. I recommend that any of us, all of us do this, a self-assessment. Um, it's not to kind of separate out who are the saints and who are the demons. That's not why we assess. The reason we assess is because our jobs are hard and we've got to always be working on getting better at it. And the degree to which we recognize and work on and improve our cognitive errors, our biases, is the degree to which we can work with people effectively. Simple as that. So here's to hoping that if you've uh, kind of got a free hour that you can create,
here's to hoping that you visit this website. I, I think it's outstanding. Um, and it's, it's one of those that uh, you don't even have to be in the field to appreciate. My 88-year-old father uh, got on this website and said, I'll be damned. All right, so let's get back to our definition. Intense, impulsive, disorganized overreaction. We added at the beginning, it's also emotion-driven. Intense, impulsive, disorganized overreaction becomes more intensely negative and risky through a vicious cycle. Escalation is not a moment, it's a pattern. And it may be dangerous, may turn dangerous, and it may be contagious. Well, what do we mean by uh, overreaction? So it's an overreaction. It's not random. It's not out of nowhere. Back to that notion uh, from that person that I had admired so much, Curtis uh, was his name, who said, you got to be able to listen to the crisis. If the person were able to say what they were experiencing, how would it sound in words instead of these potentially dangerous actions? Well, as we're trying to understand an overreaction, we want to listen to what's legitimate. And as we listen, there's maybe sometimes a temptation or a pressure, I might even add. Instead of listening to understand, sometimes people listen to prosecute. And what I mean by that is they listen to the irrational errors that someone is making in their thinking. As we listen to understand, we're trying to help find the legitimate piece, the reaction. We want to help bring that to the forefront of the person who is escalated so that then we can help solve that problem. Really, we're there to help problem solve. And in order to be able to do that more uh, in a healthy way, we want to be able to bring that to the front and not prosecute and find the error. By the way, someone can tell when you're pointing out their errors, they just get more and more frustrated with you. It's this assumption, right, that if the person could solve the problem without escalating, they probably would. And, and I want to recognize there are exceptions to that. There are patterns where a person says, uh, you know, maybe to themselves, they say, I know I can get what I want by just turning up my volume. And I, I know that pattern. That is not the typical issue with intense, impulsive, disorganized overreactions. When that pattern does occur, that someone is purposefully escalating, then a treatment team can work on how to address that pattern differently. But I really wouldn't call that escalating. I would call that like instrumental violence or instrumental threatening. It's in fact controlled but designed to look a certain way. It's a different deal than an escalation. And here's a model that maybe describes in more detail the type of escalation that we're talking about. And within this model, you'll start to see the opportunities to help people. I think this model explains what happens more clearly than any. In fact, I believe this is helpful for clients to know as well. So I'll kind of walk you through it. So something happens. And let's recognize that the something that happens may be something that the rest of us can see and hear just as clearly as the client, 
or maybe it's something that the client is more sensitive to because of what they've been through, or maybe it's something that the client is experiencing on their own. We can't see it. Maybe it's a text they got. Maybe it's something that's just happening between their ears because of psychosis, but something happens. So when this thing happens, then the person starts to think and their body starts to react. Cognitions and arousal. And with these cognitions, right away after something happens, in, in, in not kind of in an orderly checklist kind of way, but just kind of in a blink of an eye, it's this sense of, was that on purpose? Was that toward me? Was this person, did they do that because they were in control? Uh, I'm, I'm not trying to, you know, point out any anyone of you, but, you know, road rage often has that. The person cuts you off. They cut me off on purpose because they thought something about me and they were in complete control of their actions at the time. A series of cognitions. At the same time, the body is reacting. And it's this combination of heart rate, blood pressure, and adrenaline. So in reaction to something happening, these cognitions and this arousal both occur. And then what we see here is element of escalation number one. The more someone's arousal is increasing, the more their cognitions are likely to be personalized and deciding that the person did it intentionally, it was under their control. The more someone is thinking this way, the more their heart rate and blood pressure goes up and the more the adrenaline is mixed in. So right here, escalation number one. When these two areas happen, that's what leads to this thing that we call anger. And then with anger, what we get is something then happens. Anger being sort of the emotion that we label, or maybe let's call it the predictive state that someone is in. And then here we have withdrawal or antagonism, let's call it fight or flight, person does something. So let's go back here. Suppose our client and you are walking down the sidewalk together, having a conversation, and someone else is walking down the uh, sidewalk, coming the other direction, you know, listening on their earphones to something. And there's a passing us, they laugh. Our client might think, are they laughing at me? Are, are they making fun of me? You know what? F that. And then their body goes up. Now they're angry. And then if our client gets so angry at that person who just walked past them on the sidewalk, and they kind of come back toward the, whoops, and they come back toward this something that happened. And they say, you know what, man, F you. Well, now the something that happened becomes something different. Now the person takes those earbuds out of there and says, what'd you say? And maybe their posture changes. And now our clients' cognitions and arousal reacts to that. So here we have a different type of 
escalation possibility, which is the something that happens can change based on the way that our client reacts to that something. In fact, there's also escalation that as we may be, or as our client is starting to demonstrate this behavior, as they maybe start to change their posture, they may be getting angrier at that moment. So even just the idea of changing the posture, making the shape of a fist, putting a chest out, shoulders back, even before changing the something that happens. So now you're getting a sense that this changes the heart rate. It changes the cognitions. That's how it ends up getting the anger. And it changes the situation. So here we have this model of what's really happening with escalation. What's happening that now, oops, I did it again. So that this other person is escalated as well. A person or people is escalated as well. or doing something differently. And that changes it. Well, this shows us a couple areas, right? One is some people are more likely to have their cognitions go here than others. And there are things we can do to practice so that we are less likely to go off the, the rails. Some people's bodies are more keyed up on edge than others. And there are things that we can do and things that we can practice to make it so that we're a little bit more calm of body so that when something does happen, this is less likely to jump off, which is then therefore less likely to trigger the cognitions, right? So now we're on, what can we do? What can we do to try to be helpful in um, working with clients once we've put the context in place that's our own self-control and this respect and empathy that allows us to listen. What can we start to do? And here, because this uh, is from overseas, they use the word that we're not familiar with, delimit, but we'll just call it structure. So structure, clarify, and resolve. That's what we'll be looking at. What can we do here? So let's start with structure. And I'm going to jump ahead a couple slides and I'll get back to the other one. Well, what can we do to structure to reduce risk? Well, certainly in any of the settings that we have more control over, we can address those settings, whether that's a clinic site uh, or somewhere else. And even in the community, the way that we are uh, kind of choosing our location. Looking to the degree to which a space is cramped or crowded. Our uh, clinic sites or department sites uh, have that risk of an institutional look. Uh, sometimes they're overly bright. But a lot of the times, you know, even when I'm thinking about what can we do about this, right? Instead of going like, well, you know, there it is. There's a fluorescent lights overhead. Sometimes we have two light switches on the wall and we can, hit, you know, hit them both, which lights up all the bulbs, or we can hit one of the two, which lights up some of the bulbs. How warm is the light? And here's sometimes that balance where we say, well, if, if we have lamps that have a, a bulb that's more warm than the fluorescent, there's a real positive impact there of the light. But also in terms of stuff, 
we don't want something to be used as a weapon. Right? We don't want to set up a desk lamp that could then be used to knock someone on the head with it. In terms of stuff, we have to consider our potential weapons visible. To what degree is our environment containing aspects that we ourselves wouldn't think of as a potential? Here's a, a classic example. On a desk, we may have a stapler. It's kind of standard office you know, supplies. From today onward, I hope that if you have a stapler in an area where you see a client, it's in a drawer and not on top of a desk. Because if someone picks that up and swings it at you or swings that at a family member or swings that at, a, at another person who's part of a group session, all of a sudden it's a weapon. And when someone is angry and their thoughts and their body are kind of increasing in that vicious cycle, and if they move toward fight instead of flight, sometimes looking at a potential weapon and grabbing it and swinging it happens just that fast. Another aspect is sound. How loud? Are there competing sounds? By the way, I'm hoping that there isn't that, uh, I'm guessing it's the fan of my computer getting picked up. I'm hoping that's not distracting you all uh, here today. Um, and I'm, I'll give some attention to that uh, in just a bit. When we said delimit, what else does that mean? Sometimes it's about other people. We'll get to that in a second or inviting people to sit down. But looking at our environment is a structure that we can do well before any escalation occurs. Well, let's talk now about engaging with the client. Let's talk now about actual interventions. What time is it now? Quarter after 10? <laughs> Finally at interventions uh, after all that with context. You may have noticed that some people during an escalation or a crisis sometimes pick, they don't pick. Sometimes what comes out of the mouth is a repetitive phrase. They get stuck on something. What's coming out of their may, uh, the mouth may be something like, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. Or I hate these people. I just hate these people. I hate, you know, you hear this, this phrase repeated again and again. It's really, you know, an expression of being stuck. We don't experience it as blatantly regarding a client's ability to take in information, but it's happening the same way. They're stuck. So the ability for information to get past a client's ear and into their brain, the ability for people to hear what we're trying to say, um, that's one that we want to do everything we can to open up that barrier. And one of the key ways to do that is find something to agree on. Someone who's in an escalation is very used to just being told, be quiet, sit down, stay still, stop, don't do that be still, right? They hear these things and that's all that's coming in and they sort of stop listening. One of the first ways to help open someone's ear is to agree with them. And there are three ways to agree. So you get options, right? Because sometimes it's really hard to find something to agree with, uh, with someone who's that far out of bounds. And so the first thing to agree with is the actual truth. So let's say you were doing some health navigation and you were accompanying a client to a physical, and maybe they haven't had a physical in like five years. 
Um, and the person who is drawing their blood, let's say it's a nursing student, and the person has tried three different pricks to uh, get a blood draw, and our client's starting to get worked up. They haven't been to a doctor in five years, and what's coming out of their mouth is, you know, why do why do you give me the nursing student? You give me the nursing student because I'm the guinea pig. That's the idea. That's I'm your lab rat. So you're just going to give me some incompetent nursing student. Uh, are you going to try again? Is this your first time ever doing this? Now I'm getting a nobody. Oh yeah, I bet if any of you go see a doctor, you don't get just some, right? So th it's this kind of escalation. And it's tempting if we are accompanying our client in that moment to say, stop, be nice, don't yell, right? That's a tempting, reasonable way to start. But as we are using our self-control skills and looking to find the legitimate part in that overreaction. In fact, catching three needle sticks before we're able to fully draw blood, that actually is a pain in the neck. <laughs> That's a pain in the arm. It's a drag. And we can say, yeah, you know what? This really is a pain to have those multiple sticks. I think anyone in this situation would be upset about it. And that's our first point of agreement that then allows us to help. All right, so let's, you know, together, let's take a couple breaths. We can then move to our interventions that we'll be talking about in a second. But the key is to open up those ears. Sometimes though, we don't have an actual truth we can agree on. And so then what we're left with is maybe the principle. So that if we're working with a client in their apartment and the client was yelling and, and put a hole in the wall, and maybe the person who kind of shares a wall, and there's you know more than one wall that separates apartments, so the, the fist didn't go through the wall, but it put a hole in the wall and the person next door heard that loud bang, maybe they called the police and the police arrived. And our client may start yelling about the police, how the police are disrespecting them. And there are circumstances where police respect doesn't live up to standards. And there are circumstances where police respect is happening and our client may be perceiving it differently than we are. It may be tempting for anyone to reasonably say, yeah, you know what? Um, these officers are actually doing their best. So let's listen to them. That's a correction. And people are ready to be corrected, ready. People are in a state where being corrected again and again while they're escalated isn't as helpful. And so the way we can agree is we can agree with the principle. You know what? I agree everyone should be respected. And I agree you should be experiencing respect through everything that we do. And I'm here to help you to experience that respect. And then we can move to our intervention from there. The idea is to agree in a way to have the client start to be able to think. Sometimes though, we don't have a truth or a principle we can agree on, and then we're just left with the odds. So if our client is in the lobby waiting on the psychiatrist and the psychiatrist is late arriving, it's a late afternoon appointment, and the, our client's been in the lobby for an hour and the psychiatrist hadn't arrived in the building yet because they're coming from their other gig, and our client might, may get up and start yelling at the receptionist. Why did you schedule me when you know full well he's always going to be late? And you scheduled me for this. I took two buses to get here. That's nothing to you because I'm sure you drove, but I took two buses. I, I went through all this just so that 
he can show up whenever he pleases. It's nothing to him, right? Getting back home to him. You know what that is? It's about getting in a Jaguar for me, right? So our client's getting up and now they're screaming at, maybe standing over, maybe physically intimidating the receptionist. There may be a temptation. And this is one that I've actually seen play out again and again, incorrectly. Sometimes I've heard our staff say, uh, you know, everyone has to wait. Even I have to wait to see a doctor. Uh, even I have to wait, right? I have never seen that work. I have only seen that backfire. We can agree with the odds and say, you know what, I bet a lot of people get upset having to wait. Having to wait for a doctor when you have to, you know, go through a lot to get there. I bet a lot of people get upset about that. The idea with finding a way to agree is to be able to engage so that then you can start to have your interventions work. If we just lead with our interventions, they're going to bounce off. The ears are closed. Let's also add this contextual piece that sometimes more than one person is escalated. Sometimes there may be uh, family members or friends of the client. They may co-escalate. Sometimes it may be teachers. If we're working with a child in their school, they can escalate. Board and care staff or IMD staff may de-escalate. Um, so who are we de-escalating? That's a trick question. Who are we de-escalating? Uh, the answer is just about everybody. We're helping our client and we're also helping others to be able to de-escalate themselves at any given time. And really this is about making it so that we aren't going to be surprised by that. We're going to help. So how do we structure to prevent that kind of contagion with family members or, or bystanders and overhearers, colleagues or ourselves? Uh, well, we have to recognize that with this contagion, some bystanders co-escalate. Some, you know, are experiencing trauma of their own. I mean, some people like drama and they're just drawn toward it. And for us, we can direct people that situation I was describing about walking with a client, de-escalating a client while walking on a sidewalk. That happened with me. Um, the other person was walking down the sidewalk and uh, my client sort of screamed out, Adam, what the F you laughing at? And then the person walking down the sidewalk and by the way, we were waiting for an ambulance. That was while we were de-escalating, walking along the sidewalk. Uh, I had wished we were staying still, but we weren't. Uh, we were on the move. And the, uh, the person, let's call it that moment, luck, looked at me. And I was able to just give him a, a, a quick shake of my head that said, like, this isn't about you. Uh, please uh, let, let us keep doing our thing here. Uh, and the person saw me nodded and then moved on without co-escalating. We want to structure in any way we can to be intervening with these people in ways that are respectful to them as well. Our, we can see colleagues start to escalate. Maybe we work together as a team. By the way, teams that are functioning at their highest do this. They have team meetings where they say, you know, let's have a signal. If we're working together and if I see you start to get a little louder than your usual self, if I put my hand on your shoulder to say, hey, can I help? That's my signal 
to kind of help you tap out. Uh, and, and let's say even if even if you feel like you're cool, or even if I feel like I'm I'm good, but I feel your hand on my shoulder, then I'm, I'm turning it over to you because I'm going to trust you as a team member to be able to have an eye on me. We structure to prevent contagion by working with family members and bystanders. In groups, group therapy, or in um, family sessions, we also do this in a preventive way by saying there may be things we talk about where someone gets real upset and starts yelling. And I may then ask some of you to leave the room. And that's not because you're doing anything wrong, but it's because helping a room to be less crowded helps people to calm down more easily. When you do that, you're less likely to get responses like, why should I leave the room? I'm not the one who's yelling, right? If, if we're trying to manage that kind of action in the moment, and it's the first time someone else has heard that, especially if they themselves are escalated a little bit, what you end up with is no kind of cooperation. And people can be sensitive to us, right? To us, of all people, we're just trying to be helpful, right? And clients can be sensitive to us, whether that's how fast we're speaking, um, how high or low pitched our voice goes. Um, and those aspects of ourselves communicate on their own. You know, the shirt that we chose to wear that day, the jewelry that we may have on, the tattoos that may be shown or known about the way that our hair looks. And we may be trying to say just the right thing, but that whole package is communication, right? The content is less than 10% of the communication. Everything we do is a communication. In fact, we can't not communicate. Everything that we present during an escalation. And so you can't not communicate. Sometimes it's even just how we look. Sometimes we remind a client of something or someone. Traumatized clients may carry an association to someone else who hurt them. And they may see that same something or someone in us. And our own facial expressions may show some of our own life experiences. Sometimes it's how we look because we've been through and we've got some lived experience that a client can tell when they mention something that they're going through and they can look on our face and go like, oh, okay, quick shorthand, they get it, you know? But also sometimes they can see us flinch. When there's a, a life experience that shows on our face and what comes out may look like contempt. People can interpret any number of things. Um, you know, a client may interpret that you're rich. Uh, it's communication. That's all it is. Can people even take our Instagram personally? The answer is absolutely yes. Uh, I'll give you a, a quick kind of sense of that. Um, had a mom bring her kid to the clinic where we work. 
saying that she wanted to start working with us. And we kind of took a quick look at the computer and we saw that they were engaged with another agency. You know, I said, well, you know, I'm seeing that you're engaged with this other agency. Fill me in. What's what's going on? This lot. You know, I don't like it there. I want to switch. So, you know, tell me more. And what she said was she actually really liked the people who were working with her son. However, she saw an Instagram post that upset her. What'd you see? And she said, well, she looked up one of the uh, kind of in-home or field care workers that, that was working with her son. And what she saw was a picture of the work team uh, out at a restaurant, kind of at a booth. And there was nothing like super drunk or inappropriate about it. But what was captioned was after a rough day with the clients. And what she said was, I don't want my son working with people who have to drink off a day working with him. And I thought, oh, wow. Uh, you know, as much as any of us have thought about how should we, you know, always keep your social media private, always keep your social media appropriate, stuff like that. We all know that. But when I looked at that picture that she pulled up, it didn't look bad to me. I didn't get the impression that when I was looking at that any of those people thought badly about the clients with whom they were working. I kind of saw a work team that was sort of out for some chips and margaritas on a evening. Um, that's not what she saw. It's all communication. You can't not communicate. How do we prevent a tense situation from becoming a violent episode? Back to this idea that anger and escalation may be potentially dangerous. Well, how do we maybe look at particular situations that we think may be more likely? Working with our clients, we can talk about um, accessing money for a client who may have a conservative. We can start to, with our clients, work on potential likelihood of a situation being difficult for them. How can we help our client to see it coming? You know, when we talk about facilitating de-escalation, we also talk not just about the moment, but the pattern. How do we make something less likely to happen? But we say, let's look at the pattern. Let's look at what sometimes happens. And, and we can help someone to see, you know, it's really sensitive. Accessing money is sensitive for everyone. It's what makes it an overreaction if someone were to escalate if the conservator said they couldn't have the money they were asking for at that moment. Or we can prevent our, I'm sorry, we can prepare ourselves for potential situations by saying this, this is a client who sometimes escalates in the clinic. He's had that pattern. So let's have our staff and our treatment team work on which, what would we do if this person started kicking the door um, harder and harder to try to get the receptionist to let him in that back area. What would we do? And so even when, I'm, when I bring up that, what I'm saying is by preventing a tense situation from becoming a violent episode, we then start to do those preparation scenarios with clients and with our, when I say treatment team, I also mean people who are at the clinic. Let's never forget the front office uh, team, because they work with clients uh, before we do every time they enter a building. So clarifying, what are we supposed to say in the moment? 
you know, once we've presented in a way that demonstrates self-control and the client can perceive that we are balancing control and support, once we have demonstrated that we have respect and empathy and we are trying to help understand their legit need, even though that legit need is being really camouflaged by the storm of their upset, then we can start to help. And step one toward that is coaching self-control. Um, a, a quick hint, I would recommend not having any phrases that begin with words like you need to or you have to. I would recommend instead kind of a search and replace like you know you do in a Word document. Instead of you have to or you need to, search and replace that with let's. So you might with the client say, let's take a couple deep breaths because I think we can solve this. Here we go. And as we're coaching self-control, we know that a client may respond with, man, shut the F up. I'm going to take another breath. It'd be great if you join me. Right? What we're doing is we are demonstrating this combination of control and support, and we are not being led along in a crisis. We are not being moved into a power struggle where if someone says, man, shut the F out, we then respond with watch your language. We don't have to respond that way. We are trying to bring that person toward a more adaptive sense of communication. Might be about counting. Part of what we're doing with counting is to just set a pattern that's different, a pattern of thinking and speaking that's different. This is a client with whom we work. We could ask um, to be able to check their pulse, to say, if it's all right, let me check your pulse. I'll bet your heart's racing. And there's maybe two benefits to being able to check someone's pulse. Uh, one is it kind of feels like a supportive physical intervention. We're not really at a point like we are with family members who are escalated because we have professional boundaries. There may be a family member who's kind of going off the rail and escalated and real upset and we may hold their hand or we may give them a hug and we, we're less likely to do that with a client because of professional boundaries. Checking a pulse on someone's wrist has some elements of that same supportiveness, but it's a much more professional aspect. And really, then there's that second benefit of if someone's pulse really is kind of up there and, you know, you take it for 15 seconds, multiply by four, you go, yeah, you're up to about 120 beats a minute. Man, that's fast. Uh, let's see what we can do to help you get that down to 100. Uh, what do you think would help? What helps for you? That's this idea of coaching self-control, facilitating someone's ability to de-escalate themselves. In these efforts to identify needs, to be able to understand the reaction that is hidden because it's an overreaction, impulsive, emotion-driven, potentially dangerous overreaction, impulsive. We use explicit phrases like, I want to understand why this means so much to you. Sometimes all this is over like not getting a snack at a board and care or not getting a soda that they wanted an after-school event. I want to understand why this means so much to you. 
we can and should set limits. Balance control and support. We can and should, if someone is making threats, say injury is unacceptable. It's unacceptable to hurt someone else. We can also say, if someone gets hurt, we're going to have to call for backup from law enforcement. And that may lead to an arrest. When we're managing our own self-control, we can say something like that. When we've lost our self-control, we say things like, I'm going to call the cops and you're going to end up in jail. I don't know if someone's going to end up in jail and call the cops. Sounds almost like I'm making like a threat or something. That's the way it sounds and comes across when we lose our self-control. So I've spent so much time at the beginning about what it takes for any of this to work. What does prevention really mean? It means teaching skills. It means intervening early. It means maintaining the relationship and empowering someone to build better habits. Prevention is what occurs when someone is calm. Prevention is what occurs not when someone is escalated, but in order to decrease the likelihood that someone gets escalated. What are some of those skills? I'll go over those real quick. You probably already know these, but I want to get it to you as, um, you know, a tool you can have in your toolbox. One is self-monitoring, being able to track how often someone does tend to escalate or get upset. And we can just kind of say, scale of one to 10, one's calm, 10's a meltdown. Uh, keep track of times that you are over a five. And by the way, we don't need to ask all of these questions or have the person track all of these questions, but we could just ask you know, two or three of them. What we're trying to look for here is patterns. And who cares if we see the pattern? We want the client to be able to see their own pattern. That's what helps them moving forward. If they can see their own pattern, they can take steps to prevent it. If the idea was the arguments or the escalations always happen with this one particular person, well then let's start some strategies to change the nature of that relationship. Or if it happens at certain places or with certain content. And the self-calming skills are skills that happen in anticipation of a potentially escalating situation. Not while someone is freaked out, in anticipation of. And toward that end, we can just help people to realize that having a tense body and feeling edgy go together. And if you change one, it can change the other. I, I do believe that's probably the derivation of the term pain in the neck. The idea of relaxing your body. Maybe that's being able to visualize something positive or doing the breathing or just doing stretching. There's progressive muscle relaxation. That's good. But a lot of clients don't do that on their own. They stretch. Okay, great. So if, if our client knows that Every time they visit their, their mother's apartment over the weekend uh, and they get in an argument uh, over him leaving, living on the streets, if he knows he's going to get in that argument every time. Then the idea is when he gets off the bus on the, you know, a couple blocks from her place, stretches his neck out, does some deep breathing, 
stretches his body a little, and then begins to walk down the sidewalk toward her place. So that in walking through that front door, he's a little more calm of body than otherwise. And the more calm of body then allows the body to be less likely to jump off when something potentially provoking happens. Back to that model of anger we looked at, model of anger says when something happens, it's those thoughts, was this purposeful, under their control, was it toward me? And then the body, what does that mean in terms of heart rate, blood pressure, and adrenaline? And the more relaxed the body is, the, more that's, the less likely that is to occur. And then finally, the skill that's most likely to decrease frustration is to learn how to effectively solve a problem. This is a skill we work on with clients when they're calm so that they are less likely to find themselves getting frustrated so often. And it doesn't have to be a great problem-solving model. You can pick a model and work with it. And the idea there is practice this model and work on it and phrase it specifically as this is to help you be less likely to kind of lose your cool or go off or have a meltdown. This will also, most importantly, help you be more likely to get your way. <laughs> Stuff's gonna work out more when you learn how to problem solve. And the extent to which we can work with significant others is the extent to, work, to which this is likely to work. If we help teach problem solving to parents or others, uh, or others with whom our client is in a relationship, more likely to work after a crisis after an escalation. And now we're starting to kind of come to the close here. After an escalation, of course there has to be accountability. Sometimes there's been destruction of property. Sometimes there's been injury. Sometimes it's included involvement from law enforcement. Accountability is most likely to work after the client has returned to baseline. Adding consequences to an escalated person only escalates. And we don't want to do that. During escalation, accountability is most likely to backfire because it's hard to think when you're freaked out. We've already kind of gone over that. The idea is there's more of this, you know, we say oxygenated blood flow in the limbic system and the amygdala. Um, the threat sensing and the emotion driven parts of the brain, that's where the action is. And there's less happening in the frontal lobes. So we wanna help someone get back to the point where they can understand. This is learning theory. That's what accountability and consequences are, helping to learn. When someone's escalated, adrenaline's pumping, body's agitated. We wanna help someone get back so that they can learn. And how can we tell? if accountability is effective. You know, sometimes it feels good to be able to demonstrate accountability. And, and, I, and I get it, that there's, there's an effectiveness of accountability for those who have witnessed it. There are, you know, family members who may have been hurt and they need to know that someone uh, who did that feels the fact that they did that. That's kind of that pull for justice. I get it. For the client who escalated, how can we tell? Well, at, at its biggest level, is it is it less likely to happen next time? And if it does happen, is it less likely to be so pronounced, risky, dangerous? Is it less likely to last? 
two hours and, and can it be shortened to a half hour? One of the, I think, saddest patterns that tends to happen with escalated people, and I see this most with like kids and adolescents, less with adults, but sometimes after the person has come out of the state that they were in, they want to connect with the person who they were yelling and threatening at for comfort. They want to hug or sit close to the person who may actually have like scratches on them from what happened during the crisis. They want to snuggle up next to them. And the person is so angry at them still. And that resentment to reconnection short circuit, it's just hard to look at. And I can get it from both sides. As we go over with a client and with family what happened, people often want to avoid talking about it. Let's not talk about it. Let's not go there. I don't want to talk about that. Very typically, that approach is due to an experience of being humiliated in this effort to, now do you see what you did? Can you see how out of line you were, out of control you were, disrespectful you were, dangerous you were, et cetera, right? We're not about trying to humiliate someone. In fact, it's, it's a legit thought that humiliation is in itself aggressive. We're, that's the last thing we're trying to do. We want to check the perceptions of everyone who is involved. What were the perceptions of the client, the staff, and the family? And we want to get back to this idea of diversity. How were you seeing someone or hearing someone? Um, a client may be experiencing us as an authority figure, may be experiencing us through our gender or our age or our ethnicity, as well as the person that they know. But sometimes those other pieces show up higher. And, you know, as we're debriefing, whether that's with our treatment team or what I hope is with treatment team and client together, what did we think led to those actions? What did we do and why did we do it to intervene? Um, because it's those attributions. Why do you think, you know, and when I said, let's sit down, why do you think I said that? And the client may say, because you were just trying to control me. And I'm like, no, because I know that when we're seated, uh, it kind of puts us in a position to listen to each other. That's all I was really trying to do. I'm sorry that you felt that I was trying to control you. That's not where I was coming from. And, and it's, it's those kinds of questions back and forth to give someone the opportunity to say it out loud. Reasonable communication is incompatible with escalation. The more we can bring out someone's ability, even if they're insulting us, because I know you just always want me to be quiet. Thank you for saying that out loud, man. That's, that's true communication, right? And I'm not going to lie, it stings because that's not where I'm coming from. But the fact that you were able to say that to me, that's big. So thank you, right? That's, that's coaching someone toward healthy communication which is incompatible with crisis, which gets us back to our jobs and what we do. And, and I want to kind of take a phrase that we've heard before, and, and I want to kind of go over it. No good deed goes unpunished. 
Um, and you've made a choice to work with clients in the LA DMH system. And in all likelihood, the clients with whom you work have a whole lot more going on than a mental health challenge, which in and of itself is a big deal. In all likelihood, there's complexity there that includes social determinants of, social determinants of health and includes co-occurring disorders and includes the risk and the likelihood of escalation. Escalation being an intense, emotion-driven, impulsive, potentially dangerous overreaction. So the reason you do this work is because it's the right thing to do. Uh, you know, spoiler alert, you're not going to get rich off of this. And sometimes it's going to leave you feeling drained. No good deed goes unpunished. So let me just talk about the word punishment for a second. Punishment's a behavioral construct. <laughs> punishment is designed to decrease a behavior. That's what punishment does. Punishment is designed to make you quit. It's a challenge. No good deed goes unpunished. When you are drained, burned out, there are elements there that are trying to punish you. Well, why don't you quit? That's a legit question. Hopefully you will take me up on my homework challenge and complete that professional quality of life scale, the pro qual. Hopefully you will work within your treatment team to collectively help yourselves to maintain that enthusiasm to continue helping. Hopefully you'll go to that website implicit.harvard.edu to take a look at your own tendencies as regards implicit bias. But what's foundational is you've chosen to do this work. And that means you know that what you're doing is right. So hopefully the two hours that we've spent together has helped you to be a little bit more equipped to help our clients de-escalate themselves. So with that, uh, I'd like to say thanks for spending the two hours on this topic and have a great rest of the week.